0: I used to be a total wreck for weeks before giving a talk. And especially right after, like thinking of all the things I did wrong. But then I just practicing a lot. And I think a lot of the practice wasn't learning how to be a better speaker, but it was learning to be okay with not doing it perfectly or realizing it's okay to mess up sometimes and I can handle it. And also people don't usually even notice. (laughs) So just a lot of practice. This is
1: In Her
2: Element, a podcast from BCG. I'm Corinne Lines. And I'm Suchi Srinivasan. Each episode, we have meaningful and vulnerable conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology.
1: This episode, we're speaking with Dr. Kate Darling, a research specialist at MIT's Media Lab. Kate has devoted her life to researching the topic of human-robot interaction,
2: a fascinating field that affects almost every aspect of our modern world. If you've already heard of Kate, it's likely that your first interaction with her might have been through her TED Talk, Why We Have an Emotional Connection to Robots. Kate may be a prolific public speaker, but it hasn't always been easy for her to take to the stage. Here's my conversation with Kate.
0: So I'm Kate Darling. I'm a research scientist at the MIT Media Lab, and I work on human-robot interaction. Amazing, amazing.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about your career path leading up to your current role, and what were some,
0: maybe, the inflection points along the way? My career path was kind of weird. I originally went to law school, and then instead of becoming a lawyer, I decided to do a doctorate in law and economics. And that ended up being at a tech university where there was a lot of robotics happening. And from there, I wound up at MIT. And suddenly, I found myself wanting to switch fields um, because I started working with the roboticists a lot. And we realized we had a lot to learn from each other. So now I'm kind of in between the disciplines of social sciences and robotics. So fascinating. And it was almost like
1: just by chance that you were at this university where there was all this robotics happening and then you
0: just felt that there was a love for it or like you just had so much interest in it. I did. And I'm not an engineer, but I just made friends with so many of them. And there was this lab right down the road from my office. It was sponsored by Disney. And so they were making this animatronic turtle. And so I met some of the students there and I just, it never occurred to me that I could be a roboticist. And it was like really too late for that at that point. But I somehow managed to make a career for myself where I get to play with robots every day. So I'm very happy.
1: (laughs) It's incredible.
0: (laughs) I love that. It's fantastic. And so
1: you work in an interdisciplinary field. Well, what are some of the challenges that you
0: find in doing that? Uh, There are definitely challenges. And actually, a lot of my mentors, like, they were always really supportive of my ideas, but they always kind of advised me against um, being in an interdisciplinary field because academia is just not set up to really support that. You kind of have to put all of your eggs in one field. And so I got really lucky that that worked out for me. It's still challenging. It's, It's challenging being taken seriously in any given field because they're like, well, you haven't devoted your life to this one, so you can't be an expert in this. And to some extent, that's true. And, and that's why it's so important to work with the people who do have more knowledge and experience. And so my expertise is really in making the connections between the fields and then collaborating with people to answer interesting research questions that are at the intersection. And it feels like sometimes that's
1: when the most interesting conversations are had. And it's always, you know, when you you look back and some of these like most influential people, they did have all these really divergent interests. And then it was like the bringing together then that created this, you know, monolithic company, like for example, Apple or whatever. So I think that's fascinating that you've been able to do that. And that's, like I say, the most interesting stuff usually comes out of that. What are, I didn't touch on this,
0: but what are some of the challenges of being a woman in your field? Well, I'm lucky that I haven't had to pioneer anything. There have always been other women, so I haven't been alone. Um, But It's the same thing as the interdisciplinary stuff. It's, you know, it's always hard to be taken seriously. You have to work harder than the guys. I had to learn how to position myself. And I think one of the hardest things for me to learn, but the most valuable was that no matter what I do, there's always going to be, people who talk down to me. There's going to be people who comment on my appearance. There's going to be people thinking I should be taking notes in meetings. And there's also going to be women who are unsupportive. I remember in the beginning, it was kind of hard for me to find good female mentors because some of the older women that I was encountering were just not great about helping newer generations who were doing things differently. So I think just understanding that it's this unwinnable game to be a successful woman and also get everyone to love me and respect me, (laughs) it was very freeing to understand that. And um, I started to worry less about what I was wearing or what I was saying and got to focus more on being who I wanted to be. Do you feel it's evolving? Is it changing? Was that more historical? And do you feel now there's more
1: female engineers, and then there's more of an, an embrace? Maybe also with your track record and your success, and you
0: know the way that people like perceive you now—that's changed. But do you feel it's evolving? I do feel it's evolving, and I mean, I, I also have to say, like, I was in like European academia, which is maybe a little bit behind the U.S. in some of this. And by the time I came to the U.S., I had a lot more support, but. Uh, it, it's changing, but I mean, there's still more work to do. like i I still I feel like a lot of the clout I have now is because I've made a name for myself. And so I think it's also important to try to use that clout to help younger women who are coming up in the field. So the work that you do at MIT Media Lab, can you tell us a little bit about that? The Media Lab is this kind of weird, wonderful place. Uh, I don't know that I would have been able to have this career or build this career anywhere else because, like we literally call ourselves anti-disciplinary. <laughs> so it's the whole point is to be between disciplines and make connections and follow interesting research questions. And so there's some really wild stuff happening there. Everything from like art and music to like brain science to robotics. It's, it's all weird and wonderful stuff. I work on human-robot interaction from a social, legal, and ethical perspective. So I'm literally embedded in a lab with people who build robots and work on AI. And I get to think about uh, what that means for society and for the future of technology. So it's kind of my dream job.
1: So your main field of study is, would you call it human-robot interactions, your main field of study?
0: Yeah, it's a, it, it is a. It is a legit field at this point. And it's very interdisciplinary. There's a lot of people, psychologists and ethicists and a lot of people working in it. Amazing. And why do you feel like it's really important to do research in this realm? Oh my gosh. Well, I think it's fascinating because people, it turns out, are really weird uh, in how they behave around robots. We treat robots like they're alive, even though we know perfectly well that they're just machines. Uh, But that's not just interesting. It's also important, I think, because right now, Robots are kind of coming out from being behind the scenes in factories, building cars, and coming into shared spaces. So like workplaces, households. And it's really important for technology integration to understand that people treat them differently than other devices. It has design implications. It has workplace implications. It has so many implications for everything that's happening right now. And it's so funny to see there incredible engineers, especially here in the Boston area. Like there's so many robotics companies that have worked for literally decades on creating robots that they can, that are safe enough and reliable and robust enough that they can put out there and they'll work. And they haven't really worked so much on anticipating people's reactions to the robots, which tend to be really extreme. Like people will be like, oh my God, what the F is that? Or they'll be like, oh, I love it. I want it to be my friend. And so the companies. I think some of them have been a little bit taken aback by what happens when they actually deploy the stuff. And they're like, oh, actually, human-robot interaction is a really important field. So it's having a comeuppance right now.
1: I think it's so interesting when you say they're coming into shared spaces because it makes me think of my kids. And when, you know— Alexa says something, I find myself compelled to say, like, say thank you. You know, she educated you, you know, say thank you or something like that, <laughs> which I'm like, and then I kind of have to fight myself. Like, that's so weird. But then I'm like, oh, but I want them to be grateful that they she shared that knowledge with them. So I I totally
0: acknowledge exactly what you're saying. and think it's so relevant and true. They even, so some of those, I, Alexa, I know is one of them. I think the Google Home as well. Parents started complaining that their kids were just learning to bark commands at a female voice. And so- uh, they implemented this feature you can turn on called the magic word feature, where it makes you say please and thank you. Oh, you should look into that.
1: <laughs> and what would you share in terms of others that might be interested into getting into the field that you're in?
0: How would you encourage them, or what might what advice might you have? Well, now that it's like it's it's a pretty big and growing field, and I think it is important. Um, there's some big conferences uh, and. Like I said, it's not only research labs now, it's also companies that are starting to incorporate this field. And and the nice thing about it is it's so interdisciplinary. Like if the field you're in, if you think it can provide any insight into human-robot interaction, you're probably right. I think I would encourage anyone to look up some of the conferences and get involved. And do any of those
1: come to mind just off the top of your head? Like any any that you think are better than others or
0: any that you've been to that you thought were really great? Um, the biggest human robot interaction conference is called HRI, human robot interaction. Um, it's very competitive to get in with a paper, but there's also all these like workshops and fun events around it. And uh, I think it's in Sweden this year, it like changes location. So that that's really the one where you get to meet the whole community.
1: So you have a few robots yourself. Can you share us a little bit about them? What are their names? What do they do?
0: What do they look like? <laughs> yeah, we have we have a lot of robots. I mean, it kind of depends on your definition of robot. Like, Use a loose definition here. Some of our, like, animatronic toys we call robots. Um, I have a lot of robot toys, like robot pets. We have a lot of smart speakers. I think the most interesting thing happening in our house right now is that my kids, they do interact with Alexa. I also have a Google Home because I I feel like I have to own all these things to, like, try them out, to know about them. But the the robot that they like way more is called Jibo. And So Jibo didn't make it as a commercial product. It's just a research platform. But it's basically like Alexa. You can ask it questions. It can't give as many answers. But the thing it can do is it can move its body. So it looks a little bit like a Pixar lamp. It can dance. When you ask it to dance, it swivels its head to look at you. And just that little bit of physical movement causes my kids to just be fascinated by Jibo. They love Jibo. They don't really care that much about Alexa. So just sort of having some of that animatronic, like, ability and
1: some of those human characteristics of, like, attention when they're addressing each other has really kind of upped their interest.
0: Yeah. And, and like, I knew this because it's there in all of the research, but now I'm seeing it with my own eyes and it's really interesting just to change topics a little bit you are a fantastic public speaker. I watched your TED talk it was
1: riveting so so incredible. Was this something that you were always good at or interested in
0: or how did that evolve to become part of like your role? <laughs> I mean okay I will say I've always liked attention so that helps but I've also always been kind of a perfectionist and really afraid of making mistakes especially in public so it did take a really long time to feel comfortable on stage. I had to give a lot of talks just as a PhD student. So I really was kind of forced to practice a lot and get more comfortable with it. I used to be a total wreck for weeks before giving a talk. And especially like right after, like thinking of all the things I did wrong. But then I just practicing a lot. And I think a lot of the practice wasn't learning how to be a better speaker, but it was learning to be okay with like not doing it perfectly or realizing it's okay to mess up sometimes and I can handle it. And also people don't usually even notice. So just a lot of practice. Yeah. And what would you say to others who are very nervous? And maybe that answers it, that are very nervous
1: with public speaking and just sort of practice again and again, or any other tips that you've used?
0: Yeah. If you practice again and again for years, it'll help, but also life is short. So if you really hate public speaking, like why torture yourself? Another thing that helped me though, is I, I worked with a speaking coach for a while, um, just like over Zoom. And there are also these like online speaking classes you can do. And sometimes the tools that they can provide are really helpful.
1: Such a good tip. Very, very cool. Did you have any one little tip that
0: like they gave you that was like, kind of like an unlock for you? Yeah. And it's like, I hate it and everyone hates it, but it works. Uh, It's, you have to watch videos of yourself speaking because you, unlike anyone else, are going to see every flaw and be more aware of them. So you are an advocate for passing on power to people who might not have it. How do you do this in your own work? I think I can always do a better job at this. I try to see that in most situations, even situations where I don't feel like I have any power, there's always someone with less power. So instead of, Thinking about how I'm a victim, I try to focus on helping that person instead. I'll definitely try to pass on opportunities to people who are more junior or or who are underrepresented. Like I keep a list of Black women who work in AI, for example. So if I'm invited to a panel and I see it's all white people, I'll point this out to the organizers. I'll send them the list so that they have some people to call. Um, I do a lot of mentoring and coaching students on how to advocate for themselves. I think the the most scary one that I do is um, I mean it's not a big deal but it, it is scary for some people especially people who have been socialized as women to like not ruffle any feathers. I try to be the squeaky wheel for people who can't be so like I don't know, I've argued with older men over whether we can have a meeting on like evenings or weekends because I know that there are young mothers who are part of the group. And even if I'm able to do the meetings at the time, I want to speak up and set a precedent. And I argued with one guy once and he was like, well, if you can't meet on the weekend, you shouldn't be at MIT. And I was like, OK, well, there's your diversity and inclusion problem right there. And now that guy doesn't like me. But you know what? The meeting happened during work hours. So I I could afford to burn that bridge.
1: Thank you for sharing that. And how do you, and maybe that's a great example of it, how do you maintain your work-life balance? Is it just by setting boundaries like what you just shared? Or are there some other and tricks and tips that you use to to create that sort of
0: balance? Oh God, I'm so much better at setting boundaries for other people (laughs) than for myself. There's no such thing as work-life balance for me. I think it's something that I chased for a really long time before realizing that for me, the key wasn't to find this elusive balance, but it was to be okay with not doing everything perfectly all the time. And actually there's one of my mentors, Stacy Dogan. She's a law professor at Boston University and she's one of my mentors. And she, um, when I had my first kid, I remember that her advice to me was to get used to not being able to perform at the level I'm used to performing at. So to get used to being at 30% capacity or whatever, I feel all the time that like I'm failing at everything. I'm failing at being a good mom or partner or at work or at friendships or keeping the household together. And I think the only solution to that for me has been just trying to develop grace and self-kindness. Can you tell us a time when you felt in your element? I only have an answer to this actually because a friend recently pointed it out to me when I was in my element. Um, And it was while hosting my Halloween party. (laughs) I I like finally realized this dream of having a house in this great location in a Halloween neighborhood. And so I can decorate and invite everyone over. And we have full-size candy bars for the trick-or-treaters and like little nips, like little booze bottles for the parents. And um, it was just pure joy for me. So I guess that's my answer. This is clearly like you've arrived, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you need a friend to tell you who you are. That was my conversation
1: with Dr. Kate Darling. Suchi, what were some of your key takeaways from this conversation?
2: Yeah, you know, she had such a fascinating journey from not being in the field, coming from law, going into the space, and then really digging deep to explore some of the toughest questions facing us. You know, human-robot interaction and the interdisciplinary nature of it is actually something that is now, really coming into prominence for us and for her to really delve into the space and investigate it. But yet, at the same time, you know, as she exposed her tentativeness you know was it okay for her to not be at full capacity was it okay for her to lean in and speak up about this topic in which she was undoubtedly you know quite an expert and had spent all this time I just thought it was so great for her to find all of those allies and those sponsors who could encourage her to be authentic and lean into it and give the world what she has to offer in the space which is you know a terribly important question for this day and age today. Corin, what stands out to you the most about the conversation?
1: So I think uh, one of the greatest things that came away from this conversation with Kate was that, you know, we all go through phases in life and seasons and moments where maybe we can't give as much as we would want to. But I think we more than anything, instead of sort of comparing ourselves to an earlier time and a current time, the better thing is to think about what is my overall contribution and how does that compare in the environment overall? Because your contribution compared to someone else's could be so much far greater, regardless of what's going on in your personal life. And
2: regardless of the capacity that it's measured against, right? It's not about the capacity, it's about the outcome. And as you're right, it's about the contribution to the world, right?
1: Well, that's all for today. This has been In Her Element, a podcast from BCG.
2: Join us every episode to hear meaningful conversations with women leaders in digital business and technology. Thank you so much for listening.